Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and an abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, the dear Abby of nonprofits, gets it, and she is here to help. Every spring, I teach undergrads about nonprofit communications at the University of Pennsylvania. I really love it. It's mission driven for me. I want smart young people who care about the power of communications to join the nonprofit sector. Make a living, make a difference. And I've had a few conversion successes. So why is communications a big deal for me? Same reason it's a big deal for my guest today. I'm joined by Sean Gibbons, the executive director of the Communications Network, a nonprofit that supports foundations and nonprofits to improve lives through the power of smart communications. Our conversation's a good one. We cover a lot of ground. Sean will share why he believes that organizations that communicate well are smarter, stronger, and vastly more effective than those who don't. Sean will share with us four things that nonprofits must have in place in order to, as he says, quote, kill it with your communications, end quote. And he will tell us the key to having an extraordinary communication shop, regardless of the number of dedicated communication staff members you have. And by the way, he's not really a big fan of press releases, and he's going to tell us about that too. Sean's background includes a leadership role at The Third Way, where he built the communications and marketing departments for this public policy think tank in D.C. He also had a tenure as the director of media strategy at the Center for American Progress. You will not believe the percentage of budget that the organization spends on communications. Sean will clue you in and tell you why. Before the nonprofit leap, Sean Gibbons was an acclaimed television producer, an award-winning producer at CNN, recognized for CNN's live 9-11 coverage. Before that, there was ABC News, Nightline, World News Tonight, and yes, I could go on. The nonprofit world is lucky to have him in the sector, and our listeners are lucky to be the beneficiaries of your insights. Sean, welcome. Oh, my pleasure, Joan. It's a, it's a great honor to be with you. Yeah, terrific. Um, so I literally got in last night from Park City, Utah, where I was working with the grantees of the Park City Community Foundation. They still have snow out there? Um, just on, actually they do, up at the tippy top. Did you ski? Did you ski? No, you, you, if I skied, I wouldn't have come back in one piece. Uh. Um, but I was working with the grantees of the Park City Community Foundation, specifically on a workshop about the power of communications in their grantees, specifically about the role of staff and board leaders and the role they play as ambassadors who, who have to be eloquent, concise, and inspiring. Bless you. (laughs) (laughs) So the Communications Network, which you are the executive director of, is a nonprofit organization. So I figured I would actually go, I'd try my exercise on you. What's your elevator pitch? Tell me about the Communications uh, Network, what it does, why it's important, and why it's important to you. Okay. Well, we know that organizations, particularly in the nonprofit space, organizations that communicate well are stronger, smarter, and vastly more effective. Right, um, because they not only are talking about who they are and what they do and why it matters, but they're also gathering information from the world at large, and they're much more agile and adept at actually exploiting things beyond uh, beyond merely their their ability to be in the field or to offer dollars or whatever it might be that their organization does. And so the network exists really simply. Our name says it all. We are a network, and right now we're a network of almost a thousand folks uh, working at some of the larger national. Uh, nonprofits and foundations 
uh, I'd say here throughout the United States, but increasingly it's becoming a global organization. And networks are crucial, right? I mean, networks are a way for us all to really supercharge our capacity because it suddenly gives us access to folks who are thinking differently, who have different ideas and different approaches. And I think that the, the purpose of the network, generally speaking, uh, or in the most pointed way, is to connect people who are doing the work of communications in the social sector, is to allow folks who are working at these extraordinary organizations to learn from others who may be going a little bit ahead of them in a new space that they may be considering stopping and stepping into. Um, so to my way of thinking, networks are so extraordinarily important, and, and being part of this organization, it's clear to me watching some of these institutions get together and, and learn from each other is just such a, an extraordinary thing to see. Because, particularly in the communication space, the ground is moving so swiftly underneath yeah. our feet. There's yeah. so much more science and rigor and data that's involved in doing communications well. None of us, not a single one of us, and that, I put myself at the front of the line, has a monopoly on understanding how to do this work well. But doing it together, well, you know, we some of us end up getting a little bit smarter when we learn from our colleagues. Totally. So that's what the network is. Totally. So the thousand members. So who are the kind of folks that are members of your network? Um, you know, why don't I start by telling you who my board is? I think that's always fairly instructive. So the board is led that. by a, a fantastic, brilliant guy. When I wake up one day, I hope to be half as smart as he is. His name is Alfred Ironside, and he uh, leads communications at the Ford Foundation. So it's folks from the Ford Foundation and MacArthur and Knight and Earth Justice and uh, the James Irvine Foundation and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Whenever anybody tells me, asks me, you know, who is the network, I always say to them, you know, if you watch PBS or you listen to NPR and you hear the name, names that pop up at the front or the back of the, the program, right. uh, it's those organizations, mm -hmm. right? And it's it's increasingly now, and this has been a shift for the network, it's increasingly now national communication focused on profits. So folks like NRDC and the Council on Foreign Relations and the Center for American Progress, where I used to be, um, they're increasingly now adding their own intellectual heft to the network. And so the collective intelligence this organization has been just astounding to see it expand and grow. Because we've really gone from about just about 400 folks just a few years ago to now nearly a thousand. So, um, so let me, let me push you a little bit and say, so the, the kind of folks that are members of this network seem to be kind of big guns that already have quite a, probably already have quite a heft in their communications staff and strategy. Are they the folks that actually need to be in a network? Absolutely. Yeah. For the reason I, I said earlier, you know, we're all living in a space where the world is, is, is traveling underneath our feet and change is just happening so rapidly. Um, and none of us are doing this work very well. Let's be really plain. You know, as I said, organizations that excel at communications are stronger, smarter, and vastly more effective. What I didn't say was what the problem is. Yeah. And the problem is, is that most nonprofits and foundations struggle to tell people who they are, what they do, and why it matters. And when I say why it matters, I don't mean why people working in the organization think it matters. Correct. Why is it meaningful or why does it matter to folks out in the wider world, right? To the folks who otherwise wouldn't pay you the time of day. Plenty so, of Sean, more. let me ask you a question. Why, why is it so hard? I mean, so here these, you know, people live and breathe these organizations, whether it's like Habitat for Humanities or it's, you know, or, or, or it's the LGBT Center of New York or it's, you know, the Marshall Project that does criminal justice work. Yeah, you know, the they, they, they live and breathe it. They have the right. most extraordinary things to say. Why, what makes it so hard? Why do, what makes it so hard for them? 
You know, I'm, I'm going to give a flip answer, and I think there's probably a longer conversation than we have time for to really dive into this, but I think there's a little bit of a Stockholm Syndrome, right? The people who work at these organizations oftentimes have traded uh, handsome paychecks or uh, other, other sorts of uh, prizes to do this really important and noble work, and they're true believers, yeah. right? And they sometimes have a hard time getting out of their own way to understand that not everybody sees the world the way that they do. Um, and I think that that's a big challenge is that there's a bias towards saying that everybody knows who we are and what we do and why it's important. And I just think that the reality is, is that most of us live very busy lives yes. and we might recognize those things to be important, but we just, you know, and one of the truths in communications is you need to hear something 20 times before it sinks in. The, um, when I teach down at Penn, I have my students read the Chip and Dan Heath book called oh, Made, Made to Stick. Made to Stick. Yeah. And they reference um, this, uh, the idea of the curse of knowledge. And I, I, I see that as a big issue for nonprofit organizations. And the curse of knowledge, of course, is sort of this notion that once you know something, it's hard to imagine not, it's hard for you to imagine not knowing it. So there's, you know, an example would be like a, you know, a college professor teaching uh, freshman English. Sure. Yeah. Right. And, um, and so there's, there's this, um, I think that's one piece of it is that is this curse of knowledge that they, they are so it's so inside baseball. And I know you like baseball. You said you were the leader of your fantasy baseball team. So <laughs> I am, that's I'm so there. awesome. That's so hey, awesome. If you win, if you win April, you're, you're guaranteed to win the season, right? And I'll tell you <laughs> on the wall of my office, I have a, um, a framed collection of some very, um, very cool baseball cards from the 1960s. So I think we must be kindred spirits on many levels. Um, but um, I think the other thing is it's when you love something, mm -hmm. you want to tell everybody everything about it. I think that's true. Can I offer one other thought, which I Please. think is that I think one of the big challenges in this sector is that for so many organizations, this is a structural problem, right? Communications is oftentimes seen as an adjunct to the work, right? Whatever that work might be, or if you work at a foundation, the programmatic work, or if you work in a, a nonprofit, the, the field work, feeding somebody who's hungry, whatever it might be. And don't get me wrong, those things are absolutely crucial there, the, the purpose behind, the animating purpose behind these organizations. But, but, making communications an adjunct to the work misses the opportunity of being able to really share your story and bring lots of people to bear. Right? Yes. Because what communications can do, to my way of thinking, if you work at a foundation or a nonprofit, at your very core, at your very core, the essence of who you are, you're in the ideas business. Right. Mm -hmm. And that idea might be let's halt climate change or let's lift up the arts or let's eradicate disease, whatever it may be. It's a big, bold idea. And none of us are going to solve those things by ourselves, no matter how much we have. Even if we wake up with Bill Gates's money, it's not going to happen by ourselves. And so ideas really, in order to go out and have impact in the world, they have to leave. They have to leave your organization. And that is a communications function. And for so many organizations, they take this function and they move it off to the side and they make it an adjunct to the work where, to my way of thinking, a great comms team, well, they're your strategy team. They're helping to figure out how to take this work that you're doing and exponentially extend it out into a wider world where you'll find new partners and new donors and whatever it may be that you're after. But I just don't think there's a, a mindset that really uh, exists in a lot of organizations that right now sees communications in that way, which is so extraordinary to me. Yeah, I think that's really, really true. Um, so your organization, 
um, very much focuses on the need for nonprofits to have, as you said, to have these communication strategies. And um, uh, you emailed me when we first uh, connected and said I should visit your site at uh, www.com, with one M as in married, dash matters.org. Oh, yeah, this is the research project. Which I did. And you went on to say, and I quote, it turns out that if you have four things in place, chances are you are killing it with your communications, end quote. Tell me about that. Yeah, so about a year and a half ago now, uh, the network decided to do a project with uh, some, some really great folks out in Seattle, Washington, a firm called Brotherton Strategies. And uh, the end result was this project that we call Communication Matters. And we went out and did the first ever landscape survey. We did a, a qualitative series of focus groups, a uh, quantitative survey, and then a huge lit review to try and understand what really helps an organization that excels at communication. What do they have in place? And we arrived at, you know, you, you see lots of models when you work in the nonprofit space, right? Um, but but this is one that really resonated with me. It basically says if you have these four things working for you, chances are you're doing communications fairly well. And the four things are you've developed a really strong brand, right? You've built a culture. And when I say culture, I really mean a culture of communications. That's both internally and externally, right? And there's a lot of pieces underpinning that, right? And then you are strategic, so you're thoughtful about how you're communicating, and then you have you have the ability to take action, right? So you have the capacity and the agility to actually step forward and in decisive ways, you know, let your voice be heard. And if you have that brand, culture, strategy, and action, and those things are really lived within your organization, not just paid lip service to, then chances are, you know, you could look out and say, we're doing a fairly good job. In fact, we might even be doing an excellent job of communicating. That, that website is a fantastic resource because we don't just sit there and tell you, well, you have these four things and you're cooked. We actually then uh, basically unpack what makes up a brand, what makes up a culture of communications. What do you need to be strategic and what do you need to, to take action? And so it's, we built it as a resource for folks in the field to, to look to. And it has not only all that stuff, but it has some great thought pieces from folks like Riza Ledizo More, uh, Dr. Riza Ledizo More, who's the CEO of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and Judith Roden from Rockefeller, and uh, Darren Walker from the Ford Foundation were all kind enough to share some of their thinking. So it's a fantastic resource. We encourage folks to check that out. Um, That's excellent. That's excellent. So. So I'm guessing that there are a lot of listeners who just heard what you had to say and thought it was super smart and then said, okay, but wait, that's not me. I, I, that's not <laughs> me. I don't have, I don't, I don't either. I don't have a comms yeah, person their head going. Yeah, but I can't do that. Right. I, and you know, yeah. I just have one person and I'm, I'm lucky if, if they, you know, they get out there and they, they write a press release about our upcoming event. Yeah. Please don't do that. Don't write press releases. Don't, don't write press work. releases. Uh, I, mean, I actually didn't say that. Okay, you, of course, you're probably going to occasionally write press releases. But I think in the minds of so many folks who work in this space, our default is to think that communications is really PR and marketing, right? And, of course, let's be fair. It is those things. But done and practiced at a really high level, it is so much more than that. And I think for a lot of folks, when they hire for communications positions, they think, you know, I just need to find somebody who's a really great English major in college who writes really nicely, <laughs> mm -hmm. and I'm good. I'm set. And the reality is that that's just not true. You know, we know that creating great communications is about 
finding mechanisms to listen to your community and to the wider audience that you're seeking to engage with, right? And it's about convening, and it's about using a lot more science and data and tools to really ensure that you're working with great precision. It's not press releases. You know, it's relationships. And that is not necessarily the exclusive province of folks in the communication shop. I not think at all. Looks like not at no, all. In I fact, think... I actually, you know, one of the things, the, the workshop I referenced before, Sean, is actually about two-thirds of my, when I work with people on fundraising, about two-thirds of my work is getting them to be good communicators because, um, oh, yeah. and we talk about fundraising, fundraising, yeah. fundraising is about storytelling and relationships. It's not a transactional thing. That's 100% right. Yeah, look, you have to, I think every communications shop that is extraordinary is a communication shop that, that includes 100% of the people in the organization. Everybody who works at a nonprofit or a foundation should be equipped or serves on a board, should feel equipped and comfortable talking about the organization and, and doing so in a really personal and meaningful way. That's going to be a hell of a lot more compelling than a press release. Um, and I think for the really great organizations out there, that's really part of that ethos, that culture of communication that I'm talking about. Um, you know, I, I, I worked for John Podesta at the Center for American Progress, and John did a very curious, and I think now I realize very novel and innovative thing. He spent 50% of the CAP's budget on communications. Right? Wow. But, which was amazing, right? But what was really amazing was that that's not where that was not the water's edge. That was just the beginning. I think John had this perspective, and I'm going to paraphrase what I heard him say a few times, was that he worked for President Clinton, right? He was his chief of staff. And what he recognized in that role was that the President of the United States has these awesome responsibilities and sacred duties, but none is more important than being the communicator-in-chief, right? You have to be able to explain to people what you're doing and why it matters. And his attitude was that that ethos has to permeate, had to permeate the entire institution. Everybody at CAP had to think of themselves as a communicator. So I think when you're, you're working in a board or you're working as an ED and you say, well, I have one comms person, you've got it all wrong. You've got a full staff, and they all have to have a rich understanding of what modern communications looks like or what it could be. I would also say that you have the obligation to feed your board what it needs to be that same kind of communicator and, you know, those communicators and chiefs as well. Absolutely. I think far too often board meetings are all about the doing, and they're really not about enriching or feeding your board members the stories they need to be out there telling. I think that's probably 100% right. My board's wonderful. Of course, they don't have that problem. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, they, they, right. They wouldn't be on the board of an organization that's about communications otherwise, I suspect. Um, so I have a question for you about communication strategy and its intersection with social media mm -hmm. and its intersection with, um, as I've seen it with quite a lot of clients, um, a sort of baby boomer executive directors who may not be as savvy in the social media space as others and whether or not you see challenges there. Yeah. You know, I think it's not necessarily just a matter of savvy. I think for a lot of these folks, it's a matter of culture, right. And perspective. Like I personally find myself hesitating to be as open and forthright on social media as I find some of my younger colleagues willing to be. They, they, I just still have this sort of old-fashioned belief about privacy and what's proper and, and good manners and all of that. And frankly, not believing that people are all that interested in what I had for lunch last Tuesday. Um, <laughs> you know, I, 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 so I think that there's a, a cultural bias probably that's at play here a little bit. I think the larger question, though, is not about
about social media because I think there are some people who are really adept at it and are really extraordinary, right? Um, I think the bigger question is, is the organization have a communication strategy in place? Because I think social media is the shiny penny. It's the new, new thing. And, of course, it allows us to do a lot of great stuff without a lot of investment, of particularly of dollars, right? Um, and we know that increasingly, particularly for younger audiences, it's where they go to get information. I mean, for the first time ever, the most uh, viewed sources for information are Google and social networks beyond the New York Times or the Washington Post. So clearly they're important. But I think being able to understand, one, who your organization is. As in, I mean, we actually did a really interesting, um, I'd encourage folks, you can find it on our website. We did a webinar with the folks at Science Friday who talked about creating a social media persona. Literally think, like, if your organization was a person, who would they be? And I think we decided the communications network would be, oh, goodness, now I'm going to blank on the nice lady's name. She's a nice uh, British actress who just did a Budweiser commercial, and I am totally blanking on her name. Um, but suffice to say, we came up with a persona. Oh, I'm and, now I'm now you you know what? Now you're, you're going to have to tell me later. We're going to have to add it to the post at the end of the episode notes. Um. It's horrible. I can see her. She did the British detective show that was quite popular, and I'm just blanking on her name. You're talking about Helen Mirren. Uh, oh, Helen Mirren. Exactly right. I am thinking of Helen Mirren. Why was, that, why was I having a brain fart there? Um, but, you know, we created a persona, and so the communications network is Helen Mirren on social media. We're a little <laughs> bit fun. We're a little naughty, right? But we're blunt, and we're smart, and we're forthright. Right? And, and so that is the persona that guides our, our tweets as an institution and also, you know, helps us sort of understand the kind of space that we should be playing in. Because but it's also built on who our audience wants and needs us to be. So we're quite strategic about thinking about social media. I think for a lot of folks, there's the, we need a Facebook page. We yep. need Twitter. You know, yep. we run to the tactic or we run to the tool. And really the question that you should be asking yourself is, and this is not a generational thing. So we started on boomers, but this is a, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? What are we going to see at the end? What's going to be different, right? And if you can get to those questions, you can get those answered, you're going to be really, I think, in a better place to say, well, we are going to be on Facebook, but not LinkedIn. Or we are going to be on Twitter, but we're not going to go on Medium. Because otherwise, you can just drown. Um, you know, the Case Foundation recently wrote a really telling case study uh, about their own journey on social media. And they kept saying, we kept running to the new thing. And what we found was we had a Snapchat and an Instagram and a Twitter and, a, and this and that and the other thing, right? But we didn't have a plan. And without a plan, we suddenly found that we had lost our way. And so what I would encourage folks to think about is this isn't a generational thing. I think if you're a boomer, uh, maybe you're more comfortable having a roadmap. You know, and uh, I actually think anybody who's in a leadership position probably prefers to have a plan in place. So well, when you talk social I would media, say that anybody that's anybody who's in a leadership position should have a roadmap. I think that's probably safe to say, and I I believe it's one of the one of the things, unfortunately, that often falls by the wayside with smaller nonprofits is that they feel like they don't have time to plan, and planning is key. Planning yeah. is key. So we're talking with Sean Gibbons the executive director of the Communications Network, which is an organization that supports foundations and nonprofits to improve lives through the power of smart communication. You can find them at www.com, with one M, network, in the singular, .org. And as he spoke about earlier, a wealth of resources exist for everybody in the nonprofit arena, not just the com directors, as Sean was quick to point out, at www.com1m, as in Mary-Matters.org. 
Org. I'm so sorry we're out of time. I really wish we weren't. Sean, I'm really appreciative of your time and for sharing your insights with our listeners. Uh, thank you, John. Glad to be with you. And uh, I, I deep thank everybody listening. The work that you do is so extraordinary and so important. Uh, and I, I know what a, a sacrifice it is to do the work that you do. So thank you, all of you, very, very much. So thanks to all of you for listening in. And please remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review it on iTunes. This is not to stroke my ego, although it might. But the more uh, rates, the more ratings and reviews we get, the more we're promoted. And that means more folks learn about this podcast as a resource. Thanks for joining us. Nonprofits are Messy is a service of Joan Gary Consulting. Widely known as the Nonprofit Dear Abby, Joan's leadership blog reaches over 40,000 unique visitors monthly from over 150 countries. Subscribe at www.joangary.com.